Today, as we, we continue studying through Joshua, we want to talk a little bit about commitment. And what we just did was commission leaders to their task of leadership. And there's an implied commitment there, isn't there? As we commission them and put them in leadership, we are expecting them to lead well. And so we have all kinds of, of com- commitments or covenants that we think of in life. One of the ones that comes to mind first is marriage, right? When you get married, are you committing to do something? Absolutely. You're making vows, and that's a joint commitment. Husband and wife are committing to each other. And it's a very specific time to say, this is what we will do, this is what we won't do. We will love and respect each other. We will not break our vows. And we have a lot of other implied commitments. When you take a job, for instance... You know, many of you have jobs here, and we praise God, and we've prayed for you to get jobs, but there's, there's an implied covenant, isn't there? You will do what they say, you will, you will work for them, you will do what is best for the company, and they will, they will pay you, so you can eat, so you can have a place to live. So there's, there's an implied covenant. When you, when you have a babysitter come over to watch your kids, is there an implied covenant? Yeah, they agree to, try to provide you with live children at the end of the evening, and you agree to pay them some sort of fee for, for watching your kids. And we can go on and on with different things. Driving. You know, we, we have commitments. Uh, it's called a license, and you have to prove that you are able to follow the rules of the road and not run other drivers off the road, and they give you the privilege, they give you the license to drive. In that particular one, you routinely have to go back and verify that commitment, Right? Verify your ability and that you're able to do that. Well, it's interesting when we think of spiritual things, when we think of walking with God, sometimes it's easy to get into a mindset of it's one and done. You know, if I accept Christ, I've got my fire insurance, I can, I can just live however I want, and, and we forget that it's an ongoing relationship, it's an ongoing commitment. And in fact, if we're honest about it, we are a rebellious people. We are forgetful people. And we come into times where if we don't keep renewing our commitment to God, if we don't keep remembering what He's done, if we don't stay in His Word, we will walk away because we want to. Because it's convenient. Because that looks nice to do. And so we can drift. Well, God knows that about us. He made us. He... he, has watched us. His heart was broken in the fall, but He knows our hearts better than we do. And so God, in His love and in His wisdom, throughout Scripture, keeps reminding us of His greatness. Keeps reminding us of who He is, our relationship with Him, our commitment to Him. Children of Israel were no different. In fact, we've seen over and over God saying, set up a pile of stones. Why? I'm going to assume you said to remember. As a reminder, a lot of people said something. I'm not sure what you said. Um, and so there was this pile of stones. At Ai, they made a pile of stones over the king to remind them, number one, of their sin and the consequences of sin, but finally of God's work. At Jericho, they were to, to leave memorials. And so we see this over and over. We saw after the crossing um, of, of the Jordan that they spent a time of recommitment at Gilgal. And now we come, and and we're going to just backtrack a little bit to the end of chapter 8. I know we've already talked about chapter 9, but right after Ai and the defeat of Ai is yet another time where God instructs, instructs them, 
let's remember. Let's remember your commitment. Let's recommit. And this morning, we want to go back and spend some time on that passage and actually talk through it and do it and practice it this morning. Because I don't believe that we are very much different than the children of Israel. It can be easy to say, and I bet all of us have said, I can't believe they keep falling away. Man, if that was me, I wouldn't fall away. I wouldn't forget. They've seen the the Jordan part. They've seen Jericho fall down. How could they forget? But they do, and we do. We've seen God work in our lives. We've experienced His grace, His salvation. We have His Word, but we still fight sin. We still struggle to obey at times. And so this morning, it's not just for the children of Israel. It's for us to commit, to renew our commitment to God. As such, and you've heard me say this before, I don't have four brand new things this morning for us to do to walk close to God. Okay, So I don't have new secrets and new things that you can do to suddenly renew your, your relationship with God. And I've heard people that have done that, and that's how books are sold. I have four old things to remember. Four things that come up in Scripture over and over and over again. And our challenge is to not get tired of hearing them, but to do them. And so this morning we're going to get a rare insight as we're going to follow the children of Israel to a commitment ceremony, to a time where we get to see a worship service, an early worship service. And we'll look at four different things that were part of that service and how can we do those same things individually and as a church. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. And we'll be looking at verses 30 to 35 this morning. And again, this is right after the um, renewal of Israel to God's, God's um, pleasure and to His work. And they defeat Ai. And now at the end of Ai, we get this. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joseph did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. And that is a description of their recommitment ceremony, a time of worship. A little bit of history in in maps. I, I don't remember if I showed these before when we were running out of time at the end of chapter 8. But just a reminder of where we We are. If you remember, the children of Israel came over here, and you have Jericho here, and then they came up here to Bethel and Ai, and they had the defeat there, or and then the the victory there. And then what we see is going up to Mount Ebal and to uh, Mount Gerizim, 
up at Shechem. And Shechem was right in the valley between Ebal and Gerizim. And so this is probably a 20 to 30 mile trek. As far as we know with archaeology and where the different tells are or the different sites are, 20 to 30 mile trek and then probably over the mountain road. If you remember, this is a deep valley, the deepest valley on the, the planet. And then you come up here to the mountains and they're fighting up in the mountains. And so they probably take the main mountain road north about 20, 30 miles to Shechem. Here's a picture, a modern day picture. So it didn't look like this back then. And this is from the east. So if you picture from the east, when you're looking off to Mount Gerizim, this is the south. And Mount Ebal is to the north. And you can see how there's a valley right between. And they've gone there, and it makes a great amphitheater. So someone could easily stand in between there and be heard up the hillside of both sides. And this is where God said you should go and have this ceremony. And we'll look at that in a moment. Shechem is a, a significant place. We see it going forward is significant. It's also where Abraham was, was met by God and given the promise of the land. And so Abraham, back several hundred years before this, was given the promise of the land here, and God has them go back to this same place to renew their commitment. Um, Jacob also was here and received promise from the Lord. He actually bought land here, settled part of his family here, and so this was a significant um, part in the life of um, Israel. You have Sychar up here. Anyone remember the story in the Bible that takes place in Sychar? Fast forward to Jesus. Woman at the well. Very good. Um, so the woman at the well happened here. So this was a central place that, that people came to. Here's another view of the same thing. And you can again see Mount Gerizim here, Mount Ebal here. Mount Ebal is the taller of the two. Um, and you have Sychar and um, Shechem. And what we're talking about today probably happened right here in the um, crease between the two. So hopefully that helps give a picture, a little bit of a... a um, helps you, your imagination, see what's going on. A um, couple of things. Let me go back to that picture. What we're going to see in the text is Mount Ebal. Half the tribes were to go up this mountain and, and hear it, and half the tribes were to go up here. Mount Ebal is where the curses were given. And so the, that mountain represented the curses of disobeying God. And it's to, if, if you flip this around, you're looking from the east, that one is to the north, and so that would represent this side of the room. You guys are the curses. You guys are, represent disobedience to God. Bear with me. It's, it's what God prescribed for the children of Israel. And you guys would represent Mount Gerizim, which represented the blessings of following God. And, and what's amazing here is God, from the start, He knows us. He knows we need reminders. And so He has created a place to give his people a visual reminder of what it means to not follow him and what it means to follow him. And, and so I love visuals. I, I know that sometimes you laugh at some of my visuals and it's a little crazy, but God was using visuals a long time ago. I just believe it helps us. It helps us picture the truth that is, uh, is happening here. Um, a couple of other things. Um, the top of Mount Ebal, and I mentioned this before, um, the top of Mount Ebal was largely barren. So what a perfect spot to represent the, the, the curses of not following God. Mount Gerizim, most of the mountain was actually fairly fertile. And so that represented in a visual way what it meant to obey God and to follow Him. 
So that's the setting that, that they were coming to. This is 20 to 30 miles away. Lots of questions like how did they come here and, and not have to fight their way here. They've had to fight every step of the way. And we don't know that. We don't know if there's maybe a battle that we haven't heard of. Or maybe Shechem was friendly to them because of Abraham and because of Jacob. And Jacob owned land there. Uh, maybe they heard what had happened at Jericho and Ai and just sort of split and left Israel alone. But whatever it was, this was a fairly dangerous journey. It was out of the way. And, and Joshua took the whole nation. As we saw in the text, and we'll see in the text, this wasn't just the fighting men. He took the women and children and the sojourners and anyone, he took anyone and everyone. He said, we're going to go worship God. We're going to go recommit to him. I think the timing is significant. This happens in the midst of the battle. Or in the midst of the campaign, rather. They've just finished the battle at Ai. And again, like we saw coming right before Jericho, the timing is odd. Why stop? Why not keep fighting? You're in enemy territory. But it is that important to God that His people follow His heart. That His people walk with Him and are committed to Him. That He regularly and routinely reminds them to be committed to Him. That's the reminder we need because we do forget. And in the news has, has been um, the, the officer Bergdahl that, that has been recovered of POW swap. And I know there's probably all kinds of emotions and feelings about whether that was right or wrong to do. What's interesting to me is the, the whole discussion of, of how he was captured. And in the midst of battle, he got tired, and, and, and for whatever reason, he left his post and, and walked off. And I, I was thinking about that I was th- as I was thinking about the children of Israel and the need to remind ourselves that in the middle of the battle, God is still God. He is still in control. He is still in charge. And there are times that we feel like we've been fighting the battle, and we're tired, and we just want to walk off. And that's when it's time to remind ourselves of our commitment to God. And that's what I believe God is doing here in Joshua 8, 30-35. Reminding His people, stay with me. I'm still God. I'm still in control. Remember to follow me for the blessings or the consequences of not following me. So four things that I want to bring out that we see in this text in their worship service. The first is obedience. Obedience. And the challenge for us is don't coast. Don't coast on obedience. It's, it's, it's easy, especially if we've been Christians for a long time, to know what we should say, to know what we should do, how we should look. And it's easy to coast on obedience. But here we see a commitment to fully obey God. Three different times in the text you see that that is explicitly stated. In, in verse 30 and 31, At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. He's making a point. This is what they were supposed to do, and they did it. They obeyed. Now, that's probably even more of a significant point after the whole debacle at Ai and Achan not obeying. Look down at verse 33. They put half of them in front of of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first. The author's making a point. They were obeying God fully. 
Verse 35, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. Not a word was left out. Again, the point is, they were obeying God and fully obeying God. As we look at a life committed to Christ, a life that is is making a difference for Christ, obedience must be a cornerstone. Full obedience. They were obeying Moses' command in everything. Turn over to Deuteronomy 27. I think it's helpful to see what the command was, that this wasn't just making this up. But Deuteronomy 27, 2 through 8. Commands that were given before they entered the land, before this campaign started. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I commanded you today on Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. That was the command that they had. The command that was given. We're going to find that this text is so important because it follows this command precisely and shows a people that were obedient to God. So commitment involves real, full obedience as they were doing. Another aspect of, of obedience that just I, I was thinking about this week as I was thinking of 1 John 5.3 where it says His commands are not burdensome. And, and one of the things is that following God's command isn't burdensome, but that doesn't mean it's trivial or it doesn't mean it's easy. For them, they had to go 20, 30 miles out of the way. They had to risk the danger of, of people attacking them through that. They had to be willing to step out and obey. They took everyone. I would have left the women and children behind in safety. But they were so committed to obeying that even if it was hard, even if there were challenges, they would obey. But because of God's help, His commands are not burdensome. They don't wear us down. So His commands are not burdensome, but not always easy. We need to remind ourselves of obedience as well regularly as they were and this whole, this whole event is doing. But something to think about with, with obedience is what's the first thing we think of when we think of obedience? If I was to say you need to obey God, what's the first thing that comes to mind? We'll see if this is true. What? Do something. Okay? You're ruining my illustration. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, that's great. Don't do something is what comes to my mind. Um, I'm to obey God. Okay, that means no lying, no stealing, don't cheat on my wife. No, you know, anyone else like that? But do something is what we should be thinking about. Because obedience is a proactive, it's what we should do for God. Now, it includes what we shouldn't do. And, and obeying His commands to 
avoid certain sins. But that's not where it stops. And so, so for me, this is where, as someone who's been a believer a long time, the challenge sometimes isn't, I, I know what I shouldn't do, and I, I need to work on that, but the question, and my, I'm convicted by this by saying, am I doing what I should be doing? Am I stepping out for God? Am I obeying His commands? For them, that meant taking the 20, 30 mile journey. For me, what does it mean? Or am I just comfortable where I'm at? So we need to be looking for ways to obey. Not just looking for sin, but what does God want me to do? The deacons walked around campus this week and it's always fun to see a new board walk around campus and when we say, um, you know, look for what's going on, you start to see things you don't see, right? Oh wow, that beam's rotted and falling apart. We should fix that. You know, things like that, things you walk by a hundred times in a year and never see when you start to look for it, you start to see it. Obedience to God can be like that. Stepping out for God can be like that. Are we looking for what God wants us to do? Are we asking that question in prayer? Saying, God, show me. Show me divine appointments today. Show me how I can do your work today. Rather than just keep me from sinning today. Which is good, but there's more. It's, it's that intentionally looking for ways to take the first step. Intentionally staying away from half-hearted obedience, which is what happens when we coast. When we just go through our routine. See, one of the things about obedience is you either are obedient or you're not. You can't be halfway obedient. Because if you're halfway obedient, what are you? Disobedient, right? It's like some of the ladies here saying, I'm sort of pregnant. No, no. You either are or you're not. It's, it's a pretty set state, right? Obedience and disobedience is like that. So our challenge as a church is are we committed to obedience? Are we committed to asking God what he wants us to do, how we step out? Next thing that we see is confession. Confession. Look at the end of verse 30 and into 31. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord. And one of the commands here is on Ebal, the, the mountain, incidentally, of curses that represents disobedience to God, he has them build an altar that represents God's atonement for sin. No altar on Gerizim. It's not needed when, when there's not sin. But the altar is on Ebal. And, and it's interesting, he gives a command, going back to the Levitical commands and, and to Exodus 20, that this is to be an altar of uncut stones. It would have looked something like this, maybe. And you see, they just took field stones and they piled them up in a square. They put one slab in the middle to, to, to do the sacrifices on. But this is not what altars in the neighboring communities looked like. All of the other altars that, that were around, they used cut stones and they used tools on them and they made them look all beautiful and pretty. But to Israel, God said, uncut stones. 
And, and I don't think that's arbitrary. I think it's a God reminding them, you don't save yourselves. It's not your effort that brings salvation. So don't cut the stones and don't make it look all beautiful. That's not what it's about. It's about the sacrifice that's on top of this altar. Because the wages of sin is death. Sin must be paid for. It must be paid for with death. And in the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed yearly to atone for sin, looking forward to when Jesus Christ would be the final sacrifice. And so they built an altar. And they built it the way God had said to build it, with uncut stones. But then in 31 it says in a simple phrase, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord. And those were the offerings where you would bring one of your animals, and so there was cost to yourself. You'd bring one of the animals to the priest. You'd put your hands on it so it was your representative. The priest would then take it, and they would kill it. They would sprinkle the blood on the altar and then burn the entire thing on the top of the altar. And that was representative of the payment for sin. Again, looking forward to Jesus Christ. And so what we see is the people were practicing confession. They were about obedience, but they were about confession, repentance, and being in awe of Christ's sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's talking about the sacrifice of Christ replacing those of the animals. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And it's talking about the animals. They had to keep doing it and keep doing it because it wasn't the final sacrifice. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so this altar and the simple phrase they offered on it, burnt offerings to the Lord, represents confession and forgiveness. It represents God's grace to a people saying a Savior is coming who will be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Sacrifices remind us that the payment for sin is costly. You had to take one of your best animals. You had to to have it killed. Grace is a gift, but it is not cheap. For us, it costs the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sang about that this morning in a number of songs. It was through His sacrifice, His death on the cross, that our salvation is secured. That should mean something to us. We should be in awe of that. That should never be a story we get tired of because we see the cost of Jesus hanging there on that cross. Of Him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we think of the cost of the payment for our sin, it challenges us to take care of sin. To not treat sin lightly. To not spit on the cross. To not look down on the cross. But to honor it because that cross is there to pay for our sins. To bring us into relationship with God. So we walk with God. So part of their recommitment was taking care of sin. Just as it is for us. I'd like to stop for a moment, bow our heads, close our eyes. And just between you and God, 
Thank Him for, for His sacrifice on the cross. If there's anything that has to be dealt with, if you're fighting Him on something, if, if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is about, now's the time that you could say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Because you have made a sacrifice through your life on the cross. Listen to how Paul writes of God's grace in his awe and amazement of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. I love how Paul describes grace. With which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Part of our commitment and recommitment to Christ is remembering that we have been lavished with glorious grace. Confess our sins, be in awe of Christ's sacrifice. So they built the altar representing obedience. They made sacrifices, burnt offerings, representing atonement for sin and confession. The next thing we see is the next phrase in verse 31. And they sacrificed peace offerings. These are different offerings than than, um, burnt offerings for sin. A peace offering, or some of your translations might say fellowship offering. This was an offering that you did together and it represented restored relationship with God and relationship with those around us. And what an appropriate way to follow burnt offerings of confession to God to now saying now we're in relationship with God. And what would happen is again you'd have an animal and you'd sacrifice the animal. But in this case, the priest would eat part of it. It was more like a barbecue. Not, not to be sacrilegious, but they would cook it. And and the priest would eat part of it, and then he'd give part to your family, and you would eat part of it, and it would be a time of joy and celebration for God's renewal of relationship. And that was part of commitment, saying, we are community. We We are in relationship with God. We're in relationship to each other. And what a beautiful picture of God's restoration after payment for sin. Fellowship with God and fellowship with others was, a, was central to this sacrifice. In the, in the Leviticus passage we read, it said to, to eat this with joy. Because it's a reminder that God, through His sacrifice, has enabled us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. No sacrifice, if sin's not paid for, if we're not believers, then we aren't a church family. And we're just sitting here next to strangers wasting a Sunday morning. But because of God's sacrifice, we are able to be in relationship with Him and relationship with each other. I think about that. When we talk about a commitment service to God, which is what this is, part of the commitment service was to say we are a family. We are in fellowship with each other because of what God has done. So the challenge for us is, is there anything today that's hindering that? Is there anything today that we are holding against another brother or sister in this room, in the body of Christ? We know from Jesus' words that that better be dealt with. And you go to your brother and you deal with it and leave your gift at the altar and then come back and worship. 
but here we see it tied to the blood of Christ, to the atoning work of Christ. Right fellowship with God will equal right fellowship with each other. If we're struggling in this plane, then we're struggling in this plane. Let's read the last three verses of the text. Verse 32, And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So we see the fourth thing is a commitment to God's Word. The Word. Put a priority on remembering God's Word and making it part of life. And you see there's two two steps to this. The first is in 32. And they wrote the stones on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. And we know from Leviticus they probably plastered the stones with white plaster and they wrote out the entire law. I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of work. I don't know that I'd want to type out the entire law. And we can think, well, maybe it was just the Ten Commandments. Some have said that, trying to make this an easier thing. But they have found inscriptions in Iran and in other areas there that are longer than the book of Deuteronomy. And so it would not have been out of the ordinary for them to write the entire book of Deuteronomy out. And they put it on public display. The purpose of this is, again, it's another stone. And we keep coming back to stones. And so as they would walk by this place at Shechem there, they would see these stones and they would see the altar. And it's a reminder, that's what we're about. That's our guiding principle. And then in verse 33 through 35, he then reads it to them. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord commanded at first. And he goes on to say that he reads it. And we know from the Leviticus passage that their instructions were, as you read the curses, the the six tribes that were on the curse side were to say amen. And not amen that, oh, we should do those things. Amen means that's true or let it be so. And so as this group that was going up Mount Ebal would, would respond, they're saying, let God curse us if we do those things. And God is using a visual way of, of bringing his word into their lives, saying this is important. Then on the blessings, this side, as the blessings were said, he would say, amen. Let that be true. And the people were committing to what God had instructed them to do. This was a ceremonial, visible reminder of a covenant with God. But it was a reminder that God's Word was to be central. D.L. Moody, when he was talking about faith, said this, I prayed for faith and thought it would strike me like lightning, but faith did not come. One day I read, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I had closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now began to study my Bible And faith has been growing ever since. God's Word is foundational to our walk with Him. It's to be part of everything we do. It's why when we studied 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we saw that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But if we're not opening it, if we're not in God's Word, then there's no way that God will be refining us and forming us into His likeness. There's no way that we can be growing in Him. It is that important. And again, we can coast on this. We can forget to be in God's Word. 
I challenge us to find ways to renew our commitment to God's Word. We've got to read it. Maybe it's a reading plan. Maybe it's the rooted reading plan. Somehow, keep it front of mind. I love it when people post verses. That's sort of like what they did with the stones, writing the law on the stones. Maybe it's finding someone else in the church family and saying, I need to do better at reading God's Word. Can we do this together? And maybe you read one chapter a day, and sometime in that day, text each other just one verse that you appreciated out of that. It's a way of, of being accountable. It's a way of being in God's Word. But we need to take God's Word seriously. I'd like to stand for a minute. And I'd like to do what the children of Israel did. And read some of the curses and read some of the blessings. And on the curses, have our, our Mount Ebal side say, Amen. And, and I'll just warn you, some of the curses are explicit. And I was tempted to edit God's Word. And say, well, I don't know whether we can say that in church on Sunday morning. It's God's Word. And so we're going to read it. And the kids are out of the room, and so I think it'll be fine. On this side, when we get to the blessings, I'd like you to say amen when we get to the blessings. And let's end our service today by doing what the children of Israel did and by honoring God's Word. I'm going to read out of Deuteronomy 27, which were the curses and the blessings that He gave, and then some of the Sermon of the Mount, which is curses and blessings that God gave, that Jesus gave. Deuteronomy 27.9, it starts with some of the curses. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day, because you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, and he goes on to divide the people, and that half will bless and half will curse. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And as we do amen, amen with gusto. This is God's Word. We are saying that is true. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. In chapter 28, it goes on to the blessings. It says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So I'll read a verse and you answer by saying, Amen. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall your basket, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl.
Blessed shall be, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself, as He has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. Skipping down, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods or to serve them. Amen. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, also gave some blessings and warnings. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then he also gave some warnings. And this side would remind us of the warnings. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Again, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. God's Word is powerful. It is good to be reminded of our commitment to it. You may be seated. To the consequences when we don't follow it, to the blessings when we do. Four things out of a commitment service. Obedience, confession, fellowship, or or thanksgiving to God, a time of worship, and finally a a recommitment to God's Word. We need those. We need those every week. And I pray that today we are recommitted to, to confession, to thanksgiving and fellowship together, to studying God's Word and to following it. Those are the things that please God. Those are what He's looking for from His people. Not some special, huge, new new and and improved ways of following God, 
but the ways that he's said for all eternity. May that be our commitment. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we worship you. I praise you for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we don't deserve it. It is amazing. It is glorious. Thank you for your atonement. I pray that we would live in light of it, that we would study your word, that we would obey it, that we would follow it. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is dedicated to fellowship with you and fellowship with each other, that shows that those relationships are renewed because of your work on the cross. Lord, may we follow the example of the children of Israel and continually recommit ourselves to you, remind ourselves of what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.